0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the peace talks between Ukraine and Russia on the border with Belarus, which appear to have been a ruse on Russia's part to pretend to seek a diplomatic solution while escalating their military offensives on Ukraine as they close in from the north, south and east with overwhelming force. Joining us for a perspective on why the underdog in this fight is proving to be united and resilient is Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Temurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. A socio cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012, her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations, and we will discuss why Ukrainians are fighting and what they are fighting for. Then, following a bogus referendum, which has the dictator of Belarus extending his rule while declaring the end of neutrality and the country's rejection of nuclear weapons, we will speak with David Marples, the distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, Canada, And the author of a number of books including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and we will discuss his article at the Edmonton Journal, How Putin's Obsession with Ukraine Led to Invasion. Then finally, with primary elections tomorrow in Texas, we will look into the effects of the Republican-controlled state government's blatant voter suppression laws aimed at Democrats, which have the state's largest counties rejecting mail-in ballots at record rates, with some turning away as many as 40% of ballots. Joining us is James Moore the best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He is the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. And we will discuss his op-ed at CNN, The Texas Primary Has Turned Into a Bad Netflix Series. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Emily Channel Justice, who is the director of the Temurti Contemporary Ukraine program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Emily. And what are you hearing from your many contacts in Ukraine now, particularly in Kyiv? It seems like these talks on the on the Belarus border were something of a ruse on Putin's part to distract from the build up, the military build up. And he's now he sort of sent in his B team first, uh, most a lot of conscripts, and they were sort of testing the Ukrainians and. They've been chewed up pretty badly, apparently. But now he's sending in the A-team. So it's pretty grim, is it not?
1: It is grim. I think the immediate response from the Ukrainian side has been much more than many people anticipated. Um, and, and that includes Vladimir Putin. I think he incorrectly assumed that many people in Ukraine would welcome him with open arms. And that's not happening anywhere, even in the places that he anticipated being kind of more pro-Russian than others. Um, and so he's been kind of forced to recalculate, recalibrate, and to use more aggression than maybe he thought was going to be necessary. That's not a good thing. But at the same time, it's it's showing resilience on the side of the Ukrainians that um, is, is, is I, I don't know, inspirational. Is that the right word? I mean, they've really shown that they're not going to let their country go easily by any means.
0: So do you think Putin actually believes his own propaganda that Ukraine is run by a bunch of Nazis, even though the president is Jewish?
1: I think he does to some extent. Um, I I don't think his... His propaganda is based in much reality, but I don't think there's anybody in his immediate circle there to tell him that what he's telling himself is not true. Um, And so it's very possible that he absolutely believes what he's saying. I mean, we know that he's used that narrative that Nazis took over the Ukrainian government in 2014. You know, he's used that narrative in Russia for a long time. Now it looks like that was in preparation for this moment, for that justification. Um, I mean, President Zelensky's response, his first speech um, in response was so eloquent, and, you know, talking about his own family's sacrifice for the Red Army, uh, for the Soviet Army. You know, it, we we know from from watching more than Russian TV that those narratives are false, but, but Putin has an echo chamber around him.
0: Well, you know, I, I really wish the U.S., had a better ground game in terms of counter-propaganda because clearly soft power would be really helpful in... I mean, I think the Russian people know that they're being sold a bill of goods, don't they? I mean, they're, they're pretty cynical because they've been bombarded with state control propaganda for decades. What's your sense on how much they believe, even though we're told at least 50% of the country support Putin and the invasion?
1: Well, that's that's what what we're told. I, I think, um, you know, we haven't had it's it's hard to get, you know, good, good polling data um, from Russia. We know that much of it can be manipulated. And and so it's hard to say. I, I just heard some numbers today that were based on trusted academic sources that had a number of around eight to nine percent of people that really supported an out and out war with Ukraine. That's Russians who would support a war with Ukraine. Eight what? to nine percent. That's a tiny fraction of the actual population.
0: Absolutely. So
1: so so I think the you know, the, the disconnect here that we have to keep in mind is the Russian people who don't necessarily support an aggressive, violent invasion versus those who still believe that Ukrainians and Russians are brothers or are the same. You know, what's the position? What's the point of of potential um, dissent within that people who, okay, maybe they believe that Russians and Ukrainians are the same, but they aren't willing to use violence to sacrifice their own selves, their children, their parents in order to get that back. That's the kind of crack, I think, that we have to look for. It's very possible that 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 number who isn't willing to use violence is much larger um than we've anticipated, and we have seen a lot of you know anti-war um protests on the streets in big cities in Russia maybe more than certainly more than Vladimir Putin anticipated.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. So you know the Ukrainian people very well, Emily, and a lot of talk about their bravery and it's pretty obvious. Uh, this is a David and Goliath situation. And there's also talk about a guerrilla war. How much is this sort of wishful thinking on the part of the West? Because I imagine there should be, and maybe there is, a certain element of guilt amongst Western and NATO leaders that they've really not come to Ukraine's aid when they should have. And the Ukrainians are clearly doing all the fighting. And Let's face it, the Ukrainians are fighting for democracy. And here in the United States, we're losing our democracy through massive Republican voter suppression. We have a former president who's openly siding with Putin, and he could come back in 2024. So we're not exactly in a very healthy situation vis-a-vis democracy, but the idea that the Ukrainians are standing up for democracy on their own is kind of heartbreaking.
1: It is, and, and that yeah, I, I think you framed it exactly right. I mean, Ukrainians are are willing to give up everything to keep their country alive. I mean, we know that Ukrainian democracy isn't perfect. And as you've rightly pointed out, American democracy is far from perfect itself. So what they're fighting for is, is an idea as it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an identity. It's so much more than, um, you know, than, than joining NATO or, or something like that, you know, it's intangible. And I think that's what motivates people to keep fighting, I I do fear that this could become a long and drawn out resistance. Um, Obviously, you know, I I say that I fear that because I think it would it would entail a lot of violence and a lot of death. I think, you know, we're already seeing large numbers of civilian casualties. That number is going to continue to increase as long as it draws out. But Ukrainians are not going to back down. I mean, President Zelensky, I'm sure I went into these talks today knowing um, that, that you know, there there's not anything he's willing to give up um, in order to, to get concessions. And so um, we really, you, there's just, it's, I don't know if it's heartening. I don't think that's really the right word. It's just, it's very moving to see people who are willing to fight. And those people who aren't willing to take up arms, I should point out, they're in the background. They're helping people get medical supplies, get food. They're helping refugees leave the country. They'll help, they're helping foreigners who were stuck in Ukraine get to the borders and get to safety. So even the people who you're not seeing taking up arms, they're also doing something to help. And They're staying in Ukraine. They're risking their lives to stay in Ukraine to do that.
0: So these scenarios for guerrilla war, whether or not they're exaggerated, it would seem to me that given how many troops Putin would need for an occupation— He certainly doesn't even have that number. He'd need about a half a million. So again, is his military planning based upon his own fantasies about that he's liberating the Ukrainian people as opposed to enslaving them?
1: I I think so. I I do think that the, and this is actually kind of where the, the fear really is rooted, I think he did expect many people, Especially in those border regions, to greet Russian troops with open arms, they have not, they are fighting. Um, so like you already said, he has to bring in this A team, which he doesn't really probably want to do, but that means he also may ramp up some of the other kinds of aggression. And and so, you know, that means more indiscriminate bombings that may impact civilians even more, right, um, much more aggressive use of force in, in some of the areas where we hadn't yet seen that. Um, and so I think the fear is that instead of learning from this negative reaction on the behalf of Ukrainians, you know, instead of recalculating to say, okay, you know, maybe I'm wrong, he's going to instead ramp up the violence and aggression. Um, As we've seen, he's ramped up the nuclear threats as well to anybody who gets involved. So the fear is, you know, how do you respond to counter somebody whose initial response to people not accepting his invasion is to be more aggressive? I think that's a scary prospect.
0: Well, apparently he's deployed the Wagner group, which is the mercenaries, run by this guy, Prigozhin, Putin's chef. Mm-hmm. And they're very active in, in Africa where they're doing horrible stuff. They're really nasty people. And apparently they're already in Kiev, at least Zelensky has warned that there are these assassination groups out in uh, Kiev trying to assassinate him and his family, along with other key leaders. So it's got to be incredibly scary for the Ukrainians to not just to defend the perimeters of the cities under the assault, this growing assault from the Russians, but also having this kind of fifth column within their cities and within their country.
1: Absolutely. And and we've, we saw a, a, a threatened coup plot a few months ago um, that was sort of, seemed a little, I don't know, out there to me, um, but now obviously seems very connected to what's happening now. And we actually, uh, a panelist at an event I was at earlier today mentioned, there was already a coup on Zelensky's life months ago. Um, It was a, a very strange kind of bungled assassination attempt um it didn't go anywhere, but we now now we're starting to put these pieces together and see how much of this has been in the works and and so, I think, going back to what you said, you know this is kind of putting in the a team I mean the Wagner group has ton of experience doing ruthless things um It won't surprise me at all if 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 they're trying to infiltrate kiev i I hope and I mean, I know that the Zelensky government has made that information very public they've they've said we're looking out for saboteurs. There's lots of information circulating about people, you know, Russian military coming in and, and having on Ukrainian military uniforms. And there's, so there's a lot of you know, information circulating to help people understand what the saboteurs are doing. Um, but it's very it's very scary to see that level of premeditation and that level of aggression, um, especially when the response again, you know, the response of Ukrainians is clearly that they do not want a Russian led government.
0: So in terms of the morale of the Russians, because they've been lied to, and there have been sort of anecdotal scenes and some video clips of ordinary Ukrainian citizens confronting Russian soldiers. And there was a, a Russian tank broke down on the outskirts of uh, Kiev and a motorist was driving by, a civilian in his car, and he rolled down his window and said to the... Russians on the tank, do you want a tow? And they all broke in up in laughter and, and the, the Ukrainian said, Yeah, I'll tow you all the way back to Moscow <laughs> So So you hear these stories and you know, you hear also about the conscripts being ill trained, ill fed and ill equipped and there's at least two or three hundred have been captured already. Can that sort of work on a larger scale? Could it work if there is some kind of occupation? Would there be this? I mean, it happened in, in sixty eight in Czechoslovakia when the Soviets invaded. The young Czechs took to the streets and they all spoke Russian. And they really, you know, these poor conscripts on the tanks, had. they thought they were liberating the country and then they were quickly corrected by the, the Czechs. Could the same thing happen in Ukraine?
1: I, I certainly think so. We're seeing the example that you gave. I, I've seen several more things like that, you know, in the in a southern port city of Berdyansk, we saw videos of of people, Ukrainians out in the streets right in front of the Russian occupiers telling them to go home and in, in large crowds. So I think that morale question is is important because. Putin is ramping up these kind of ruthless campaigns, but he's asking people who clearly are out of their element and very likely do not believe in those things to do that. And also what we're seeing is you know, Ukraine is not going to back down, which means that an occupation of the major cities is going to be that much more difficult. And so if you have all of these competing elements, and you don't have, you know, like you said, half a million troops who are willing to believe in this, um, we have to hope that those that creates an opening, um, you know, for, for Ukraine to have a little bit more time and for more aid to get through. I think there is a risk in that case of a very protracted um, kind of guerrilla resistance, and, and that's going to result in just so many casualties. And I, I hate to think like that. Um, but at the same time, something like that is also another thing that could change Russian public opinion. You know, um, mothers of soldiers, mothers of, of soldiers who've died have always been a very strong political voice. So, you know, we're going to be seeing, I mean, the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian sources are claiming upwards of 3,000 Russian soldiers who are already dead. Um, that's a large voice to potentially speak out against the violence. There are families who have lost their their children, um, you know, who have lost their parents, who have lost their brothers. That's that's hopefully a voice that's going to get heard and and change, you know, I, I don't know, change the the wave of support.
0: So Emily, in the last few minutes since you've studied Ukraine and spent a lot of time there, tell us what. You feel is really motivating the Ukrainian people to stand up to the Russians. I mentioned that they're fighting for democracy, but what's your interpretation of what motivates these people to take this brave stand?
1: Well, I think we saw this in 2014, when they stood up in the Euromaidan protests against the pro-Russian government, and they decided they wanted a different way. And that was democracy, that was independence, that was a European future. So it's not just that people are fighting for this idea. It's that they know that they can do it because they've already done it. They've already done it couple of times they they ousted the pro-russian leader in 2004 you know they ousted the soviet leadership in the 1990s i mean these were always you know mass mobilizations of people who were willing to fight so it's it's both the fact that ukrainians are fighting for an idea that they have been believing in for years um but also that they have the experience they know how to do it they are ready to do it and they are not going to let you know the what whether or not NATO comes to their aid or not, that's not going to be what decides the future of Ukraine. Ukrainians are going to decide the future of Ukraine. And that's really, really, I think, more motivating than than maybe we can understand, you know, not having had our country's sovereignty challenged by a a much greater power before. Ukrainians fundamentally understand that.
0: So you're describing something that's not nationalism in the way, certainly in the way that Putin's trying to describe them as a bunch of Nazis. It's not, a traditional sort of patriotic nationalism based upon jingoism and often extremism and violence. It seems like a, a much deeper form of nationalism.
1: I think it is. And I think one thing that matters a lot is that most, you know, Ukraine has always been this multi-ethnic country. This identity has been, you know, it's shifted over many years. Um, obviously, there, there are more Ukrainians than any other ethnic group in Ukraine. But Ukraine has this idea of being a civic nation. So in 1991, when the Ukrainian state was established, anybody who lived in that territory became a Ukrainian citizen. So that meant ethnic Ukrainians, it meant ethnic Russians, it meant Jews, it meant Romanians, it meant Hungarians, it meant Crimean Tatars, right? All of these people were considered Ukrainian citizens. That's what the vision of Ukraine is to people now. I mean, that was established in the 1990s. That's still the vision that the majority of people see as Ukraine, and that's a democratic Ukraine where everybody gets to participate um, equally. And and I mean, you know, Russian Russian kind of Slavic brotherhood nationalism is very counter to that idea. It's an imposed imperial idea that that creates hierarchies and creates greater kinds of differences between people um and yes it's a very idealistic vision of the Ukrainian state we know that there's challenges to that um but but i think it's really important to clarify how people see ukraine as a government as a state uh and that's very different from from this kind of russian imperial idea where you know national identity is this hierarchy and if you're not a a white slavic person you're you're lower on the totem pole. Ukraine is not built in that way.
0: Well, Emily, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Temurti Contemporary Ukraine program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a socio cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 2014 Euro Maidan mobilizations. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the bogus referendum in Belarus where the dictator is extending his rule, ending the country's neutrality and nuclear-free zone and offering his troops up to Putin to fight in Ukraine. And joining us now is David Marples, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta in Canada, and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda, and The Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and he has an article at the Edmonton Journal, How Putin's Obsession with Ukraine Led to Invasion. Welcome to Background Briefing. David Marples.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So, David, there was this sort of bogus referendum in uh, Belarus that was put together by Lukashenko and, what, something 80% of the population want him to stay on forever as the dear leader. But the significant parts of it were that they renounced their sort of independence in effect and the fact that they were since the end of the Cold War, have been a nuclear-free zone. So they've, in in effect, invited Russian nuclear weapons in. I take it that behind the scenes, Putin must have really leaned on on Lukashenko really heavily.
2: I think so. I mean, for the past year and a half, Lukashenko's been falling more and more into Putin's orbit. And what used to be a fairly even sort of relationship, and actually a fairly fractious relationship, is now one that's very clearly in Putin's favor. And it's reflected in the way they, they address each other. Uh, Lukashenko only says uh, laboratory things t- these days about Putin. There's no complaints from him. And it's really because I think Putin is his last friend. Putin is the only one who was who has kept Lukashenko in power through the period of mass demonstrations that took place in ni- in 2020 until about spring 2021. Uh, after the elections, not well, protesting the elections. So, Russia is also providing Belarus with with loans that are urgently required, and in turn, Belarus has more or less opened its its land to the to the Russian army. They've been doing joint military exercises for about five years now, but the the ones that took place uh, this month, February 10 to 20th, that were scheduled, were not part of the regular exercises. They were kind of an impromptu. Uh, operation which actually allowed russian forces to invade ukraine from belarus and this was one of the points of invasion from from the north it's, it's very close to the to the to the chernobyl nuclear power station it was approximately about 10 kilometers away from there uh, to the belarusian republic
0: so the talks that took place on the border initially putin wanted to have the talks in Minsk and Volensky said no way because he, <laughs> Belarus is a, is a co-conspirator or a co-belligerent and the talks appear to have been a, a ruse on Putin's part to look like he's interested in negotiations while his forces double down and he sends in his his second tier army which is apparently a lot better and more professional than the initial wave that went in, which was a lot of young conscripts. So how long before Belarus enters the war? Because I take it that a part of Putin's pressuring Lukashenko and essentially handing his country over to Putin and having um, Russian nuclear weapons then move right up to the Polish and the Baltic borders. So how long before you think Belarusian divisions, and particularly the paratroopers, which is apparently their best units, are going to be in the fight?
2: I think it will be a matter of days before it happens. Uh, it, Belarus is all, Official Belarus is already under great pressure to do that. And I, I don't imagine that there'll be, there'll be a very long delay, because Lukashenko's really got in, in no position to argue. And in fact, if he opposed it, I think he'd be removed from power fairly quickly. So his, his future depends on sticking by Putin, following his demands and joining in this war and in fact the the rhetoric vis-a-vis Ukraine has become increasingly hostile from Minsk in recent months and the two countries are no longer on cordial terms and you know this has happened even despite the fact that in the past Lukashenko has got along with presidents who were far more nationalistic in Ukraine than than Zelensky Uh, Viktor Yushchenko for example got along really well with with um, Lukashenko but now it's not a matter of, of who's there, it's just a matter of following what, what Putin orders. And I think, uh, yeah, they, you will see soon Belarusian forces involved as well. And I think this is essential for Putin to indicate that Ukraine is an isolated uh, part player in this post-Slavic world, that this, you know, the other countries are more or less coming together to support Russia. Um, in fact, You know, Russia is also struggling, I think, for allies, and I think he needs he needs some help. Putin needs some help in Ukraine right now. I think Putin would also have been somewhat surprised by the depth of opposition throughout Europe, throughout the world, but especially in Europe to this war. And therefore, now it's necessary to not to deescalate, but to, to make the war appear somehow more justifiable that it's a struggle to keep the Slavic world together in the face of Western intrusions through NATO or through the United States.
0: But how do the Belarusian people feel about this? I mean, obviously, they don't have a voice. They voted overwhelmingly to get rid of Lukashenko, and he turned around and declared he got 80% of the vote, and it led to massive demonstrations which were brutally suppressed and the leader of the opposition is now what she's in lithuania is she not
2: the leader of the opposition is in is in lithuania and in fact most of the opposition is either incarcerated or living abroad which means that inside belarus itself there are no obvious voices of opposition now most of the media has been shut down and The political parties, such as they were, there were no no really numerous opposition political parties, but they've also been thoroughly repressed by the security forces. But as you say, the population itself uh, is definitely, I would say, anti-war. And I would imagine most of them are strongly in favor of Belarus retaining a neutral, non-aligned status in a war such as this. They would not want to be involved. And in fact, one of the promises that, that Belarus received from Lukashenko in his earlier period as president, was that he would not get them involved in foreign wars. They would not be serving in Chechnya. They would not be serving in Syria. They would remain on Belarusian soil. That was almost like a sacred promise. And now, you know, I would agree with you, that's going to be broken. And Belarus will get dragged into this against the interests of its people. But there's not much they can do in terms of protesting. There was a demonstration in in Belarus yesterday against the war, but it was quickly, uh, the leads were quickly rounded up and it was uh, curtailed.
0: And again, I'm speaking with David Marples, who is a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus. Prospect for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus, and his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and he has an article at the Edmonton Journal, how Putin's obsession with Ukraine led to invasion. So if Lukashenko sends his forces in, and which apparently Putin has strong-armed him into agreeing to, if there's an occupation force, do you think they'd be a part of this? Because one of the things that's peculiar about Putin's military strategy is that he needs a lot more troops to occupy that country, which is going to be incredibly hostile towards him. And I wonder whether part of that role will go to Belarus.
2: It might. It might go to Belarus. But I you know, I don't think um, the situation would be stable, even if Belarus joins in as well. It's not going to make such a crucial difference. I mean, in a way, Belarus has done done its part, by being a location for one of the main Russian advances southward towards the Ukrainian capital. So if you add the troops as well, it might um, certainly add a little bit of force to the Russian side. As you say, Russia's not got enough troops there to occupy Ukraine for any length of time, if they can actually succeed in occupying the whole of Ukraine. Um, I kind of doubt it. They would need about four or 500,000 troops to do that for any length of time. Personally, I think it's, you know, it's a huge error on Putin's part and it's an error of emotion. It's not really um, something that um, is rational or something that you would have expected Putin to do given his past policies. He's been a very careful conservative political leader who knows when it's time to withdraw and when it's time to advance, but sometimes it seems on this occasion he's let his feelings get the better of him. And his fury at the idea of of losing Ukraine, as he calls it, uh, prompted this irrational sort of action to launch an invasion. Which, you know, it, I don't. If you ever look at it. it, it cannot work out well. It cannot, even if he succeeds in occupying Ukraine in the short term. I, I, my feeling is that this is this is the end of Putin's leadership of Russia. I mean, already the economy has started to suffer um, notably, and. I don't think it's going to turn out well at all for Putin, whether you know with Belarus or with or just Russia alone.
0: But in, you mentioned the sanctions, and of course, the more effective sanctions are that the, Russia had this 640 billion dollar rainy day fund, which they thought they could ride out a lot of the sanctions. But that fund is essentially being frozen because they were not transacting dollars anymore. Uh, yeah. So. That's got to be a huge blow, and the Moscow stock exchange closed. Interest rates jumped up to 20%. So you can see that they're feeling the pain. But what about sanctions on Belarus? They are co-conspirators and co-belligerents. I imagine the U.S. administration and NATO countries are going to really come after Lukashenko, but he's already been sanctioned because of what he did in suppressing the rigging the elections and suppressing the protests in 2020.
2: Yes, and also for hijacking a Ryanair plane that was flying from Athens to Vilnius, simply to uh, to kidnap one of the opposition leaders who was traveling on that flight. I mean, I think that, that was the sort of catalyst of the most strongest sanctions that have been made against Lukashenko. What else can they do? I mean, the, the biggest source of income for Lukashenko is uh, potash exports of potash from his, one of the major potash producing companies in the world is located in Belarus. And the question then has been how to stop it. And until recently, you know, they still managed to export it through Lithuania, but Lithuania is now paid to that. But there's always a feeling, I think, in the West with regard to Belarus that if you sanction too heavily, you're not only hitting the government, you're hitting the people who don't really deserve it. I mean, these are the people who have been protesting against Lukashenko who would like to see a more democratic pro-Western system in Belarus. And is it fair to target them alongside the leadership? So sanctions, I think, will work okay with Russia, which is a major exporter on a world level. But Belarus is a much smaller economy. And one would hope in the longer term that there is a possibility of political change in Belarus there certainly are the forces to support it the problem has always been that russia has stepped in and the russian threat is really why the opposition in belarus failed but if russia you know was to crumble if the russian economy was to crumble if putin was to be removed as the leader that i think is the easiest way to foresee change coming in in belarus
0: and why do you feel that's going to happen, David, that Putin is going to be removed? I mean, if you looked at that National Security Council meeting they had a week or so ago,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it was embarrassing how his top A's and the intelligent heads were quaking in fear of being dressed down by the Tsar.
2: Yes, they certainly were. But I'm looking more at you know, the sort of popular demonstrations that have already been taking place in Russia and have a you know, history, I mean, even for the past 10 years, you can say there have been some very large anti-Putin demonstrations. There's certainly uh, a groundswell of opinion in Russia that opposes Putin. And I think if this war was over, let's say in a week, which would be more or less what, first of March, then the population might be assuaged. But if it goes on for a long time, if there are high rates of death, and these young conscripts, you know, already got a high casualty rate, um, then I think you might see some problems. It's a little bit like the late stages of the Afghan war in the 1980s when you started to see protests in the parliament and, and even within the cabinet eventually continuing a war that was so unpopular. Wars have a, a tendency, I think, to get out of hand. And what you've seen, what I think we're seeing in Ukraine today is an outpouring of sentiment behind President Zelensky and and behind the whole effort to defend Ukraine from this kind of uh, aggression. With, you know, an aggression really without any obvious cause. and. Bringing nothing to anybody that's of, that's of any value, so I, I think it can this things can change fairly quickly if wars start to go badly, and wars are usually the catalyst for getting rid of dictatorships unsuccessful wars
0: sure like the the Falklands War with the Argentinian dictators so just in the last couple of minutes though David, having nuclear weapons now Russian nuclear weapons right up against the polish border that's a change and I'm sure The Baltic states, in particular Lithuania, are pretty nervous, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they are. I mean, they made a lot of fuss about even the nuclear power station being built on the Lithuanian border by Belarus, uh, again, with Russian financing and and Russian help. But, yeah, I mean, uh, they could have been fired anyway from from anywhere in Russia. They would be equally dangerous, I think. What I think is, is most concerning is that Putin has put the nuclear forces on high alert. Now, this may be simply a propaganda, something to show uh, the Americans in particular, how serious he is. But just having done that really brings the world into a state of high tension, because if this escalated into a nuclear war, then you would be looking at the deaths of millions, not, um, not hundreds or thousands. And it may even be, of course, the the, the end of civilization so it's irresponsible I think for him to do these things but they're also a sign of a sign of his weakness not a sign of his strength you don't use this nuclear threat um which you know you know if you if you attack the west with nuclear weapons the same will happen to to Moscow um, and they will be destroyed equally quickly so what would really be the point of of using nuclear weapons
0: well David I thank you very much for joining us here today I appreciate it
2: yeah, anytime time, Yeah,
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Marbles, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda, and The Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass. And he has an article at the Edmonton Journal How Putin's Obsession with Ukraine Led to Invasion. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the primary elections tomorrow in Texas and how the Republican state government's voter suppression laws aimed at Democrats are rejecting as much as 40% of mail-in ballots.
3: Да, где бит побивает на дверь Музыка в центре с баров шумит в голову залетает мотив Его уже не остановит Видишь, забирает магнит Этот малый мне напоминает мой Минск Он без бабок идет на движ Стопудовый оптимист.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Moore, the best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. And he has an op-ed at CNN, The Texas Primary Has Turned Into a Bad Netflix Series. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Moore.
4: Always good to be with you, Ian.
0: So this is a one series that I'm certainly not going to binge watch. It's a hoax, isn't it? It's a fraud, what's happening there. I mean, I find it so ironic, Jim, that the people in Ukraine are fighting for democracy and dying for democracy, and here at home it's slipping through our fingers, and in Texas it's become a joke. It's so blatant. The voter suppression.
4: Yeah, the things that are happening are certainly without precedent, and I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are familiar with some of them. But they added so many loops and hoops to getting your mail in ballot certified. They want your driver's license, they want four digits off your social security. You have to place them at the exact right spot on the mail-in envelope, and you have to sign the ballot in the exact right place, or they'll send it back to you. And approximately, I think in Harris County, the last I heard was that 46% of the mail-in ballots were rejected, and, and it may be as much as 50% here in Travis County. So you're talking about Houston and Austin, two of the biggest cities in the state. Are getting mail-in ballots sent back, but that's you know that's just a beginning of the fraud that's being perpetrated against Texas voters.
0: Well, it's in direct response, isn't it, to the fact that in the last election there was a record turnout with mail-in ballots, largely due to the COVID pandemic.
4: Oh yeah, well we had a we had a registrar, a um, um, elections official in Harris County where Houston's located who sent out without solicitation uh, ballots to everybody in the county who wanted to mail in. And we had drop boxes all over the county and Harris County went overwhelmingly for Democrats. And so the end response to that was that instead of having drop boxes everywhere in Houston, there's not one drop box in a city of almost uh, five million people. And if you go out to Loving, Loving County, in West Texas, which has a popula- an entire population of under a 1,000 people in the county, they have one dropbox, too. So you can you can see what's happening, Ian. And in, and in fact, uh, Beto when Beto uh, O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz, he carried every single one of the metropolitan counties. In fact, the first time in Texas history, Tarrant County, which is where Fort Worth is located, voted for a Democrat. So the issue in Texas for Republicans is they can carry the rural areas, but they're getting their tails whooped in the big cities. And the rural areas can only carry them so long because demographically, the state is majority minority any day now. And on top of that, we're getting all of the urban migration from the small towns. And so it's only a matter of time and, and they're trying to delay it as long as they can.
0: But this is robbery in plain sight. It'd be like televising live a bank robbery. Why can't anybody stop it? Is there anything that can be done? Can the Justice Department do anything?
4: Well, I think a couple of suits have been filed and uh, they haven't been heard, of course. Uh, in Texas, our, our federal appeals court, as you know, is the fifth district in New Orleans, which is uh, just unbelievably conservative and they'll kick it back to us and of course then it would go up to Supreme Court where it faces a similar fate. The DOJ has sued, Merrick Garland has filed a lawsuit against the state I don't think it's got a docket date yet uh, because he's calling it, he has called it voter suppression and voter oppression um, but you know these things are these things are very subtle I think you can see them in other states as well like in Alabama they closed down they close down uh, voter registra- or uh, driver's license offices in the rural, predominantly African American counties, and so people end up having to drive an hour and a half and, and to get a uh, to get a license to have an ID to vote. And, and the same thing happens in Texas. So you know there's there's a narrow window to get these things done, and they and they make it harder and harder. And somebody said to me, in fact, the other night about why would anyone being be against presenting an I.D. to vote. And my point was, I don't think most people are. I believe what people are against is making it difficult to get that I.D. And that's that's what they're doing in Texas and and in other places around the country. But we've kind of turned it into an evil art form here in Texas.
0: And again, I'm speaking with James Moore the best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent. He's traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976 and is the founder of Big Bend Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World and has an op-ed at CNN. The Texas primary has turned into a bad Netflix series. And, Jim, you wrote books about Karl Rove, the architect, and the best-selling Bush's brain and Bush's war for re-election. So you've covered the family, the family dynasty, which has dominated Republican politics for decades, with two presidents coming out of that family. But the latest scion, George P. Bush, he's just turned into a sort of embarrassing joke, has he not? Well,
4: I guess he has no shame. (laughs) Because, you know, the the former president, uh, you know, uh, insulted both his father and his mother, and and yet uh, George P. Bush, our our current land commissioner, went and met with uh, Trump in New York City and, and you know, pandered to him, sucked up to him, tried to get him to endorse him, and Trump told him, well, I'll make an endorsement, but I'm not sure when, and uh, obviously he did not endorse George P., but he endorsed in the race Uh, for Attorney General, he endorsed Kim Paxton, and our current Attorney General has a a six-year indictment for securities fraud hanging over his head. And then he had eight of his top staffers, his top Assistant Attorney Generals, quit in unison and accuse him of using his office for kickbacks and for favors for uh, supporters. And so he's now under an FBI investigation, and yet George P. is running a deep third to a guy who's under indictment and under an FBI investigation. And so what we have seen is the other person in the primary, the Republican primary for attorney general, Ava Guzman and, and George P are down at the border trying to uh, out Trump the attorney general and and say that you know they supported the, the border wall more than the other guy. and And it's just, it's embarrassing. And I don't, I don't know how the guy looks in the mirror in the evening. Maybe he doesn't.
0: Well, I don't know how you can have an attorney general like Paxton in the first place. You mentioned the securities fraud dating back case dating back to 2015. Um, He's a born again, uh, so called Christian who wears his religion on his sleeve. He got a donor, a big donor, to pay off his mistress to keep her quiet. And his wife is in the legislature, isn't she?
4: She's in the state senate, yeah. And and she knows all this, obviously. And uh, but she's been, she hasn't been uh, talked to or interviewed. I don't think she is willing to talk to anybody. And of course, uh, Paxson doesn't talk to anyone either. Uh, certainly not the media. But that's the way it happens now in Texas. And in the glory days when I I felt like we really had a an active and viable press corps here in the Capitol when, in the years when I was in it, you there was not a politician who wasn't beholden, who wasn't held accountable, and they and they stood toe-to-toe with us, who were journalists, and they answered tough questions. And now, whether you're Greg Abbott, or Kim Paxton, or George B. Bush, you know, you, you put something out on social media for your supporters, uh, you produce a video or a news release, but you never, ever, ever get in front of actual working journalists. And and I think that is the heart of why Paxton's been able to get away with it, Ian. The other issue is that he's filed uh, motion after motion on a change of venue on this trial, and it's gone on for six years. And, you know, right now, the, the even sadder news is, that my fellow Texans who are Republicans are supporting the guy and he's probably going to get reelected.
0: Well, apparently, it's an article of faith in Texas that if you're a member of the Republican Party or you vote for the GOP down there, you believe that Trump is the legitimate president and Biden is illegitimate. Isn't that kind of the litmus test?
4: Well you've you've seen the you've seen the numbers as much as I have and, and and the 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 facts are that if you if you are the attorney general of Texas, you know, Kim Paxton filed a lawsuit against four battleground states that that the Republican Supreme Court threw out and um, the the guy who is running for agriculture commissioner for the GOP and is winning in that primary Um, you know, he, he did the same thing. He, he questioned it. Uh, Greg Abbott has been the only one who's been circumspect about it, but the Lieutenant governor of this state is another very powerful person. In fact, that office is more powerful than the governor's and he's a big trumper and he's the same way. So yeah, it's, it's almost like a box you have to check if you want to run in the Texas Republican primary and in the governor's race, the two guys that have the best chance in the primary to send Greg Abbott into a runoff are running to his right, and they are even worse than Abbott in terms of uh, the issues on the border, militarizing the border, and and uh, you know wanting to to turn young transgender and and gay people into damn near criminals just for the way they were born, and so it, it seems. It seems we haven't found a way to cure the politics of our state yet, Ian. It's just, it's very disturbing. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping maybe it's against hope, but, but, uh, I'd like to see Abbott get into a runoff because if he does, there's always a chance that the crazier person wins and that would increase the chances for Beto in the fall election.
0: So, What is it, though, that's happened? And it's happened across the country. Why has the Republican Party turned into a party of trolling and culture wars?
4: It's a long process. And, you know, in in Texas, you can trace it back to Ronald Reagan when he convinced the the conservative East Texas Democrats to uh, uh, call themselves conservative Democrats and vote for Ronald Reagan, be a Reagan Democrat. And those folks... Those folks tended to uh, convert to Republican over time. And then you had a guy like Grove who came in and and got all conservative judges elected to the state Supreme Court who created a business-friendly environment. And then that built upon itself over the years as conservatism grew. Remember, you could have taken a Texas Democrat from the 80s and the 90s, well, the 80s, 70s and 80s, North of the Red River, and they would have been considered a, a, a conservative de- a Republican, and and people have transitioned over, and the power structure has built and built and built, and then Trump came along, and and allowed these folks who are, and and he brings he brings money to the table, and so he he also empowers he also empowers these people who who have kept their racism to themselves and their Xenophobia to themselves, for the most part, and and he brings them out in the open, and and people now think that they can get away with these things, and and to appeal to those people, then the candidates have to go to the primaries and 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 repeat these vile things, and so, you know, the primary system is flawed in Texas, Ian, as it is everywhere else, because it is it skews towards the activists and the extremists, and so. Uh, that's what we get out of the primary process. And, and those people can't win without pandering to Trump and his followers. So it's, it's been a de-evolution that's just, just been disturbing. And I don't, I don't know where it stops. I really don't.
0: Well, it just, it's sort of on the voter, though, isn't it? If you care more about transgender bathrooms than having your pipes freeze in the winter and your electricity go off and, and, so many government services are a joke. I mean, you know, normally people vote for bread and butter issues in politics. But for some reason or other, that's the last on the list when you've got these incredibly incompetent Republicans. And you mentioned the uh, lieutenant governor. He's a former right-wing talk show host. So he's just yeah. out throwing red meat all day long. He, he, he's not doing any work for the people of Texas.
4: Yeah, I, and and I would I would say that you are you are fundamentally correct that we get the government we deserve. And if people don't vote for a government that that helps them, that helps their state, that helps their economy, that helps their culture, their environment, then they're going to get something that is not good but i i also want to say that and in, in, in this may even sound a little silly but but if you go out into rural parts of texas west texas and elsewhere there is a, still this kind of frontier ethic that exists in the state and it's mostly it's mythology it's in people's heads i mean there there aren't going to be any barn raisings or anything else but there's this idea that well i don't need no damn government you know and i'm going to do this on my own or I'll get my neighbors to come over, and and it is it's destructive, because as you know, and as as any rational person does, the government is an organizing principle for any society. And in Texas, we have bought into you know that old Reagan thing uh, of the government is the enemy, and so people vote to uh, eliminate and reduce the government. They vote to uh, put people in power who hate the government. You know, it's the it's the old thing about. Republicans Republicans run for office saying that government is a horrible thing and then they get elected and they go in there and they prove it.
0: <laughs> well James I hope it's not all that way tomorrow in Texas but I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: My pleasure and always good to talk to you.
0: Well thanks James and again I've been speaking with James Moore the best-selling author and Emmy award-winning television news correspondent who has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Bend Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World, and he has an op-ed at CNN, The Texas Primary Has Turned Into a Bad Netflix Series. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
3: guy that lived next door in 305 took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past.